0: Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known now as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Andrea Cunliffe.
1: And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Howie Hawkins, who lambasts the court ruling against ballot access for the Green and Libertarian parties. Then... Moses Nagel reports on the city of Albany's police review board's increased budget request. Later on, Matthew Klein and Amy Zimmerman give us a preview of what's in store for this month's salon salvage event. After that, we get insight into a day in the life of a tattoo artist. Finally, we have from Sam Paris, an arts administrator for Salon Sands, a group that will be performing at the sanctuary in November. But first, here are the headlines.
0: The recently enacted Schenectady Council budget will provide homeowners who qualified for the State Star program with a $250 property tax rebate check. The rebates are driven by a surge in sales tax revenue and the tax payments from the local casino. The proposed Rensselaer County budget would reduce the property tax rate by 1% with the county having cut the tax rate 20% over the last five years.
1: The National Weather Service is predicting warmer-than-average temperatures this winter, but the situation is less clear when it comes to snow and rain. Last year, Albany Albany did not get its first snowfall until November 26th, making it the second-latest snowfall on
0: record. The Times Union reports that a sharp reversal of a judge's lower court ruling, the state's second-highest court, on Thursday unanimously ruled in favor of the College of St. Rose and reinstated the dismissal of four tenured music teachers last year.
1: Unity House has officially opened the Catherine Allen Center in Lansingburg to support its domestic violence services. That's it for the headlines.
0: And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through the broad grassroots, grassroots uh, participation.
1: Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you could contribute, go to Mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmmmediasanctuary.org, at or call 518 272. 2390.
0: And first up, the Second Circuit of the Federal Court of Appeals last week upheld a lower court decision rejecting the challenge by the Green and Libertarian parties to a new New York law effectively banning independent third parties from the ballot in statewide races. Howie Hawkins, the Green Party nominee for governor this year, discusses next steps in the ongoing fight for democracy With Mark Dunley.
2: We're joined by Howie Hawkins, who is the uh, Green Party uh, nominee for for governor this year. Uh, Though, unfortunately, the state Democrats rewrote the ballot access law uh, so that uh, Mr. Hawkins' name does not actually appear on the ballot, even though he won that right to be on the ballot. Uh, four years ago when he got almost uh, over 100,000 votes uh, for governor. Reason they asked uh, how we on today, and I should disclose, and you know, I've been involved with the Green Party, uh, is that the uh, Second S- Circuit uh, Court of Appeals and the Feds uh, unfortunately just released a ruling on the lawsuit that the Libertarians and the Green Party had filed challenging the law uh, that effectively killed uh, independent third parties in New York State. So Howie, you want us to bring us up to date and what did the uh, court rule on this week?
3: Well, first people should know how the law changed uh, to, to get and maintain a ballot line. Uh, they changed it from every four years the governor's race to every two years, president and governor. They more than tripled the number of votes you need to get from 50,000 to 130,000 or 2%, whichever is higher it's always gonna be 2%. So in 2020, uh, we needed 173,000 votes to get a ballot line. We didn't get that. So then we had to go petition. The old petition requirement was 15,000 in 42 days. Now it's 45,000 in 42 days. And they quintupled the number of signatures you need in half the congressional districts from 100 to 500. So they made it much harder. There were eight attempts to get a ballot line on a ballot. They all failed. Including one by the Republicans, Lee Zeldin, their gubernatorial candidate, who got thrown off for photocopying 11,000 signatures, you know, on petition sheets and sprinkling them through his petition.
2: Well, he got thrown off trying to create an independent line, not as a Republican candidate.
3: That's right. For an independence line is what he wanted to call it. That was fraud. But he's on a ballot, and we're not. Uh, so. We went to court when this law passed and basically said it's a violation of First Amendment political rights and 14th Amendment equal protection. And the district court ruled against us, the U.S. District Court, and that ruling, many of the facts were wrong. It's like they didn't read our briefs. You know, for example, compare in New York, to other states, they said, well, other states have even more signatures. Yeah, but they have like a year to get those. We only have 42 days. So the judge didn't really know what he was talking about. And now the decision we just got this week from the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals just announced the decision. They didn't explain themselves. They just said they affirmed the district court level. So, you know, the, the courts don't seem to be a place where we can get justice.
2: Yeah, so, they did, there was a court case recently, though, of leaving the state of Arkansas where a federal court went in the opposite direction. And and said that the uh, efforts uh, by that state to increase the in number of signatures uh, for parties to get on the ballot was unconstitutional. So it seems like there's inconsistency among the federal judges.
3: Oh, no doubt. I mean, I was the Green Party presidential candidate in 2020, and our ballot access cases, all the judges are hacks. They vote their party line. In this case, the Republicans voted to put us on, and the Democrats voted to put us off. In every court. In every election board, it's, you know, it's not looking at the facts in the law. It's partisan uh, judicial, you know, misbehavior. So, yeah, it's hard to get justice in the courts. This is a democratic state. It's a democratic law. So our only option may be legislation, which, you know, we've got uh, ballot access across the country eased somewhat since about 1970. Um, And most of that has come from legislation, not litigation. And I've talked with uh, Democratic legislators, and I think we can find sponsors for that bill, and then we just got to campaign for it. You know, most of these people know uh, New York's ballot access requirements are off the chart. They're unjust, unjust, And uh, they're suppression of political debate.
2: Well,, well I also remember a number of years ago. I don't know if it's changed, but you know, more than half. Of the uh, ballot uh, litigation in the United States uh, was taking place in New York, and, and usually it was, um, you know, efforts by the two corporate parties to throw, you know, insurgent or independent or third-party candidates off the ballot, because it's a lot easier to win an election if you knock off your opponents from the ballot.
3: Yeah, they're they're ruthless. They they attack each other within parties. It's uh, instead of letting the voters decide, they they. They try to do it by, you know, technicalities and lawyers, and it's it's a shame. It's it's not serving the democracy.
2: And now, I assume the Libertarian and the Green Party, given the current makeup of the United States Supreme Court, is not going to be uh, uh, spending the resources to try to appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So, where does the Greens, the Libertarians, go from here with respect to, uh, you know, the right of third parties to? Independent third parties. They do allow the fusion third parties, as long as, say, the Working Families Party is willing to, you know, cross into us the Democrat for governor, or president, or the Conservative Party, you know, cross into us Republican for president and governor. They will remain on the ballot. But any party that says no to the two two corporate parties, the Democrats have said, you know, you're not allowed to exist in New York State. So how how are you going to proceed with that at this point after this ruling? I understand well, you're going to run a write-in campaign for governor. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, I'm running a write-in. If we get 150,000 or so votes, uh, we'll get a ballot line for two years, and that will help the Green Party. It's a tall order, but uh, we're doing the best we can. Uh, the plaintiffs in the case are the Green Party, Libertarian Party, the co-chairs of the Green Party, two of the Libertarian Party candidates. I'm not a plaintiff, but I know the lawyers and the plaintiffs are now, looking at their options, they could ask for the full bench of the Second Circuit Court to review their case. They could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. They could take the case to the state courts and I'll let them haggle that out. I think we'll do better with legislation, which is what I want to work on after the election, um, as well as other things. We need a really inclusive democracy. You know, we, for third parties, you know, the spoiler problem is a problem. People think, well, we'll split the center left vote if we vote for the Greens. So, And then the Republicans get in, so we got to vote for the Democrat, even if we like the Greens better. Ranked choice voting. Yeah, I I mean,
2: I've heard that recently this week. Uh, As you may know, the um, staff, state staff for the Climate Action Council is recommending that because uh, the Assembly refused to pass the one thing that the Climate Action Council had asked the legislature to do, which is to pass a building restriction that no new gas hookups or new buildings after 2024. You know, they're trying to push it back now a year. And, you know, apparently a lot of the environmental groups are saying, oh, 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 we can't stand up and protest this horrible decision, even though it's very bad for the climate, because it might help uh, people not vote for, you know, Governor Hochul and help Lee Zeldin. So we have to shut up until after the election about how poorly Hochul is doing on climate so that we don't uh, get Zeldin as uh, governor.
3: Well, that's self-defeating, isn't it? Because they've just decided they're not gonna demand what they want. They're, they're afraid to get a worse person in there. The person in there, Hochul, won't do what they wanna do anyway. We're the only candidates running on the Green Party ticket, myself and Gloria Matera. If you wanna write us in, you gotta go down to the bottom of the gubernatorial column and write our names. In that box, keep it within the lines of the box so it will count. And we're the only ones supporting that. So if, you know, environmentalists want to support, uh, you know, any gas hookups by 2024 instead of 2025 and a whole range of other climate legislation, vote for the Green Party. Your vote is your voice. Make yourself heard. Otherwise, you get lost in the sauce because you're supporting someone who doesn't support what you support.
2: Well, we only have about a minute left. Now, New York City, you know, did recently enact ranked choice voting, but only in primaries, not in, um, you know, um, uh, general elections and not in congressional races. There's a lot of concern recently that in the uh, congressional district number 10 uh, with a lot, a lot of liberals, they, in fact, elected the most conservative candidate. So in the last 50 seconds, where is ranked choice vote in proportion representation looking like in terms of legislature in New York?
3: Yeah, that was a dirty trick down there in, in New York City. They only did it because the Democratic primary all it really counts down there. They didn't extend it to the general election where the Greens would, could take advantage of it because that would have got rid of the spoiler problem. And then as far as the state legislature goes, we want to have proportional ranked choice voting from multi-member districts. So you get proportional representation. And by the way, you get rid of this gerrymandering problem because it doesn't matter where you draw the district lines when you have proportional representation of all the parties in proportion to the vote they get.
2: We're out of time. Howie, you get a website?
3: Yes, hawkinsmatera, one word, dot .org, for our gubernatorial campaign.
2: Thank you very much, Howie Hawkins. Green Party Nominate for Governor. This is Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: Hudson Mohawk Magazine has been following this story in the fight for more party representation on our ballots. Find more stories on this and other election content on our website.
0: The city of Albany passed a new law in 2020, which gives extra investigative powers to the Community Police Review Board. However, the board still has only one paid staff member and shares legal counsel with the city and, therefore, with the police department. They're asked to investigate. Moses Nagel reports
4: in 2020 albany voters passed local law j which gives expanded power to the community police review board to conduct independent investigations into police misconduct complaints by law the board is required to have an operating budget of at least one percent of the police budget mayor kathy sheehan's proposed budget of six hundred thousand dollars provides that but Due to the increased responsibility and based on other independent review boards around the country, the board is requesting $2.6 million, almost five times the mayor's proposal. Nairobi Vives, the president of the Community Police Review Board, made the case to the Albany Common Council Budget Committee on October 12th.
5: To understand what we need, um, you need to understand what we do. And as you all know, this is a board that is made up of community members in service of our neighborhoods and police department, ensuring that the people who are sworn to protect and serve us have clear guidelines and expectations. Our responsibility expanded after the recent passage of Local Law J of 2020. We are now responsible for developing accountability measures that support the chief and the city in holding the department in check. The board is tasked with doing so by reviewing complaints of police misconduct, working with the chief of police to develop a discipline matrix that holds officers accountable for their actions and reviewing and revising police policies to ensure the expectations and guardrails for officer performance and service are clear and easily comprehensible. All this is in an effort to rebuild the trust between the department and the community they serve. Improving the quality of policing improves public safety by elevating the performance of the department. Facilitating and funding independent oversight intended to improve policing can be expected to prevent tragic and costly outcomes. An objective oversight process provides evidence-based analyses such that no officer could or would be punished for performing their duties as expected by the chief and as required by the law. There is a cost to conducting professional independent investigations. The CPRB does not have full-time investigators currently, making it incumbent upon volunteers, part-time support, and consultants to achieve our work. This budget request finally allows us to engage with impartial and professional investigators being able to bring knowledge and expertise in-house, allowing for the resolution of more cases in a shorter period of time constituents expressed more confidence in the complaint process and in the authority of the board, and as a result, we are receiving more complaints. The board received a total of 24 complaints last year, and so far this year, we have received 32 more complaints. This budget increase provides the board the ability to meet voter requirements, and we take this oversight responsibility very seriously. Their lives at stake, be it community members or police officers. We owe it to our constituents to do the job they asked us to do efficiently and effectively. I mentioned Local Law J previously and I know we had a resounding support from yourselves and the voting public. The new legislation clarifies what is expected of us as an oversight agency when it comes to investigating allegations of police misconduct and expands our duties and responsibility to include police policy review and revision, as well as the development of a discipline matrix in collaboration with the chief. This iteration of Local Law J is a powerful start to civic engagement and fostering the trust between the department and the public, but it is a first step. The expanded mandate is a big part of why this board submitted the request for this increased budget. These are very urgent needs this board is looking to address, among them is doing the job this board was established to do, and that is review complaints of officer misconduct, develop an oversight and accountability structure that encourages Albany Police Department to truly serve and protect our communities, work collaboratively with the chiefs to develop the discipline matrix, and ensure Albany's residents are well informed and have access to the critical service. For a while now, we've been doing a lot of work with a little. But we strongly believe that while we need to rely on outside support right now, it would behoove the City of Albany to foster knowledge and understanding of police oversight and the most up-to-date practices in public safety in-house. It makes us smarter as a city, more compassionate as a government, and adept to directly address the needs of our community. Our budget is the roadmap to creating an independent and impartial oversight agency giving the voting public exactly what they asked for and responding to our communities in the way they need. Part of that is being our own city department or agency. Working with seasoned consultants, our primary objective is to establish this board as an independent investigative agency that provides the city of Albany with a fair and thorough accountability structure. In collaboratively working with the police department, we hope to rebuild the trust between cops and community and encourage and support the department in meeting its obligations as laid out in the nationally recognized 21st century policing principles. This CPRB is currently assigned only 1% of APD's budget. This is the minimum of what the law requires. Without having done the work, it is impossible to anticipate the needs, but we are diving in, and we're here to tell you what those requirements look like. We're learning what it takes to do this work correctly. And we use this presentation to you as well as updates provided at our public meetings to share the experiences that we have, to report out on our own duties, and transparently report on how we address the challenges we face. Among them is responding to a voter-enhanced mandate that asks us to do more without having the adequate resources to do the work properly. The board has only one staff member, as we have mentioned countless times we have done everything possible to provide a comprehensive explanation of our needs and the budgetary requirements to meet them. and This is a perfect example of why we need more money, more resources to conduct more research, draft progress reports, and generally stand up as an agency. To honestly and effectively increase accountability of officer performance, we need more funding to establish an investigative process that reviews potential police misconduct in a fair, thorough, and transparent manner. The last 20 years have seen the restructuring of this board in response to the voters looking for police accountability and civilian oversight, and with this comes transitional costs. For example, the increased responsibility of subpoena power and impartially reviewing complaints requires a considerably different operating model and resources to safeguard independence and guarantee efficacy. It's what our voting constituents repeatedly and resoundingly ask for to meet our public safety concerns. And in this next slide, we just have a proposal for additional staffing. You'll see here we have a senior investigator and two uh, subordinate investigators that will work with them in addition to an executive director and support staff. Any reduction in that staff would reduce the CPRB's ability to perform as voters in our community expect us to do, as is required by Local Law J. The voters voted for an investigative body with the primary responsibility to review complaints of officer misconduct and complete investigations in a timely, thorough, and objective manner. To that end, we've strived to perform these responsibilities to the best of our ability, and now we're asking for the funding and resources to do the work that the voters have tasked us to do. The money we're requesting is urgently needed to hire impartial investigators, to augment the board's back office, currently supported by only one person, to integrate, share database, and acquire the technology that allows us to collaborate with the police department ensuring members of the public have direct access to us. In this way, we can deliver the independent oversight that voters ask for at the polls.
4: Kevin Canizario, a member of the board, also in attendance at the budget meeting, summed up the board's feelings.
6: Every time this body adopts a budget, uh, it's a moral document, right? Through your budget, you are outlining uh, policy considerations that are moral priorities of not only yourselves, but most importantly for all of us here, uh, of our voters that voted uh, overwhelmingly for this law. And the things that you see in this budget uh, reflect those moral priorities that are uh, mandated as outright requirements by national oversight boards. You know, I understand that you all have a, a tough responsibility of many groups coming before you all asking for money, Uh, but ultimately we believe that proper funding of our board uh, through what's reflected in this budget is going to send a loud message that you heard your voter base and that you're going to properly fund uh, that moral priority that they spoke
4: loudly to the common council will likely vote on the budget in november reporting for hudson mohawk magazine this is moses nagel
1: if you are interested in more stories on the albany police review board go to our website, mediasanctuary.org.
0: And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Andrea Canliff.
1: And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM, CHOI, WOOGLP 92.7 FM, CHOI, WOOSLP 98.9 FM, Schenectady, and... W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM, Albany. And streaming live online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
0: And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org.
1: Salon salvage number three will be a night of text, sound, and image taking place in Weathered Wood on October 29th, 2022 at 7, 8, at 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. To tell us more about the concept and what to expect for in this upcoming event, are, co, are, our are the co-curators of the event, Matthew Klein and Amy Zimmerman. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
0: Hi, Matthew. Hi, Amy. Nice to have you with us tonight.
7: Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having us.
0: Hi. hi. Hi, tell me, um, what is this event?
7: Uh, Well, there's a new poetry performance series in Troy, New York, downtown, inside of Weathered Wood. Um, We've had two of them so far. Uh, We started in the summer uh, with a a reading with a couple of poets, including uh, my co-curator here, Amy Zimmerman, um, and a poet from New York City named Peach Kander. And we had an artist talk by Danny Killian, who owns Weathered Wood. Um, and then we had another event in september and we're going to have another one coming up uh end of october the 29th we'll be having events there the last saturdays of every month
0: and it's from seven to nine you're both poets yes yes that's wonderful how wonderful is that tell me how did you get involved what what inspired you to write a poem to be a poet oh back in
8: the day asking us to roll it back (laughs) huh Okay. okay all right matt go ahead
7: um most poets um are just called to be poets, and you start writing secret poems in your secret notebooks when you're when you're in high school, but usually <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah or, or maybe earlier uh, yeah there's um, yeah
8: for me, it was in junior high, yeah. and a lot of it was like mimicking things that I had read or um song lyrics, really bad, terrible <laughs> love love songs yeah
7: that's true, yeah mm-hmm. um. And then usually uh at least it was the case for me that there was a faculty member at the college that I went to who guided me towards poetry. Um oh, nice. and uh, you know, either saved or ruined my life depending on how you think <laughs> about it.
0: Yeah. They rescued it. You yeah. they rescued it. Yeah. Yeah. And Amy, you you uh you're a continuing poet as well?
8: Yeah, yeah, I, um, I have a little bit of a non-traditional, non-academic route toward poetry. Um, I've actually been a hairstylist most of my life, um, but I started writing pretty young and it's uh, held me ever since. So uh, what I love about it is that it's really connected me to a community, a much broader community of people who really care about language, about what it means and what it can do. And um, and so I've been pretty consistently involved, not just in writing on my own, which is, you know, one of those isolating experiences, I think, for a lot of people, because you do, you write mostly alone in your room with your notebook, and that's it. Um, but readings, on the other hand, and regular reading series that people can count on, actually bring people together as a community. And that has been something that I've really loved being a part of, you know, for close to 20 years.
0: So, and this event on the 29th, is it? That's On right. the 29th. So, are you going to have you have people presenting their work, I take it, but can people sign up and and the, no, they can't. <laughs> I just saw that. no you have, you have a whole plan here. I see that. Tell me.
7: It's not an open mic. There are plenty of open mics um in the capital region that that you can go to. Um, our format is usually somewhere between three and four performers. Uh, two to three poets, and then hopefully something else, uh, a filmmaker or a musician or a dancer or, or an artist talk or, or some other um, art form or medium that can be in conversation with poetry. Oftentimes they're visiting poets from, from a national touring scene or sometimes local poets um, alongside as well. Um, this one upcoming on the 29th, we have a poet from Denver who will be zooming in uh, to read from her book Math Class. Uh, I think it's going to approximate what it's like to um, take <laughs> classes uh, online. Yeah. That, <laughs> so
8: her name's Kelly Cummery, and she is also and she's also um, a Calamari Archives Press author. So this has actually become a bit of a, a showcase. Um, event and so that kind of tends to be the way that we work it is to see if we can bring people together that either come from a similar background so we can sort of like uh, showcase like what's happening in the work uh, or try to showcase a press and often the press is really diverse in the type of work that it uh, that it showcases but what's great is that we can then uh, bring the focus to a press a good independent press that could use the promotion so that ends up being one of the functions of doing more showcase type uh, events.
7: Yeah, so Kelly Krummeri's book Math Class is out on Calamari Archive. We're also welcoming back Michael Peters to the area who was a long time SUNY PhD and now he's teaching out in the middle of New York somewhere Um, and he's a sound artist and a very looming performer who does um, also all all kinds of um, drawing and and, um, text work with image. Um, So he'll be performing uh, in the middle, and then at the end of the night, James Bellflower, uh, who's an artist and a musician and professor at Siena, and I uh, will be performing from our new book, HIST, which is a poetry graphic novel, and we'll be projecting some of the images on the wall, as well as James will be performing some found sound and some synthesizer and some digital tricks, digital wizardry, and I'll be reading poems alongside of that.
1: So I always try to when we have these live interviews, I try to relate what is being said to the people around my age group, which can be a lot of short attention spans and (laughs) disinterest and a lot of things. So, So what do you guys think you guys bring to that sort of age group and why do you think that they should tune into this event as well?
8: Wow. Well, I mean, first of all, it's all ages. So the venue is all ages and it's perfectly, you know, welcoming for uh, anybody. We've had families come in, we've had people with kids. It's totally fine. We're we're open to uh, that. We think that the time and um, the time of day and the day of the week also lends itself to the all ages. But as far as the content itself, I think that what's great about it is that uh, it is really engaging and weird uh, and Poems typically uh, tend to be short little nuggets. So I think one of the things that you'll uh, find in, like, cre- in say, creative nonfiction or fiction or, you know, even journalism or, or whatever other uh, author presentations is that people can get very long winded. Uh, poets, on the other hand, tend to be a little more short and sweet. So if you don't like one poem, just stick around and uh, you'll probably hear something that you do like. Mm hmm. Also, shout out. Oh, sorry, darling. What were you going to say?
7: I just quickly wanted to shout out the owner of Weathered Wood, Danny Killian's. uh, His child, Riley, has been at both of our events. He's in high school and has thoroughly enjoyed them (laughs) and uh, is coming back. Hopefully, we'll bring friends.
0: And so, Weathered Wood is just on. Second. Yeah, Second? Yeah, it's it, downtown. So it's, a, it's in a shop, no?
7: Yeah. yeah. Uh, he also has some art studios in there, including oh, I, I have an art studio in there. Oh. And uh, we clear it out, and we put out some chairs, and uh, we rock some poetry.
0: And, and your, your art studio is more than poetry then?
7: I do collage work as, as well. That's what and I work on in there. this book you
0: showed me, which is some of the images that you'll be showing on the 29th. That's right. There's amazing images. Are those yours?
7: Uh, those are my, co, uh, my collaborator James's. Um, uh-huh. He took images that we found in an odd volume of Fenimore Cooper, um, and he put them through an app called Decimate, which uh, very slowly but thoroughly digitally destroys images.
0: Wow. Now, I understand you might have a, a surprise poem for us, is that right,
8: Amy? Are oh, you going to do a little poem? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, yes, I mean, oh, is on, this... Oh, be brave, are we? We can do it. <laughs> okay, so, um, so this one is called "Roden Crater, um, after the um, famous James Turrell. Whatever the tell says about you, it says about us all. A partial cylinder of light in the desert is not heaven, but it is closer than even a charitable donation. Not burning a forest does not get you in. Waiting for the wilt to unwilt is like this man building for 40 years his his landing strip for aliens. Right now, bare branches have the eggs of all new leaves inside them. Thinking hard about great art has punitive effects. It makes sense, desiring to enter strobe as grief display. My only wish is to see this cylinder before I die. A simple thing to lie so easily.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks, Amy. That was life changing.
8: (laughs) Um. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Thanks so much, Amy and
0: Matthew. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Uh
7: Thanks so much for the time.
0: (laughs) Thank you. See you on the 29th. Thank you. Weathered wood. And so for more information, you can go to San, oh gosh, San's, you, you, you've got to do it for me. Matthew, where do we go to? Uh, sa- you can
8: find us at Salon Salvage
7: Troy on Instagram, ah. uh, Salon Salvage on Facebook, and
8: Salon Salvage Troy on Twitter as well. Well done. Thanks so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for stopping in. Where
0: are we now? Woo.
1: The first tattoo that Crystal from San's Sushi tatu- Sauchi, Soshi Tattoo ever saw was a tribal scorpion done in green, black, and orange. It was done on her uncle's left arm. He got it as a memorial for her, fa- for her father. For her he got it as a memorial for her father for her 10-year-old mind. His tattoo was the greatest way to honor someone you loved and ever since she's been fascinated with tattoos.
9: My name is Crystal Ingram, and I'm from Round Lake, New York, and I run a tattoo shop.
10: What makes you become a tattoo artist?
9: Was that your dream when you were a little kid? It was, but my parents really didn't didn't want me to because it really didn't seem like a safe career choice tattooing didn't really seem like a like a job that a girl should do and uh the tattoo industry used to be full of really shady kind of characters and my parents really didn't want me didn't want me involved in the wrong crowd so you became
10: a professional troublemaker and made them see Uh, uh, the value of becoming a tattoo that's true i guess i am i guess i am a
9: professional troublemaker (laughs) My mom would definitely describe me as that. (laughs) That's a good way to put it, yeah. Can you take us back to your first tattoo? Oh, my first tattoo? The one I received or the one that I gave? Actually, let's go back to the one that you received. Okay, the first tattoo I got was done on Lark Tattoo. At Lark Tattoo. Um, I won't say the name of the artist because it wasn't it was a good experience but I got my father's birthday and the day he died tattoo on tattooed on me and the artist got the date wrong they tattooed the wrong date on me and so they told me this was on my 18th birthday they told me that I had given them the wrong date Um, and they told me that I, there was nothing they could do about it unless I went home and I picked the ink out with a needle. Oh. Yeah. So I did that. (laughs) I did that. And I went back and they fixed the number and the date was correct after that. But it was, uh, it was painful.
10: Yeah, definitely. And what do you learn about that?
9: Oh, always double check your numbers. Your spelling. Always double check your work, and always ask your customers to double check it as well, because then you're not liable for it if they've checked it too. Tell me a little bit about your day. What What is the day of a tattoo artist? Oh, what does it look like? I try. I try to get up early. As early. I'm not. An, I'm not a morning person, but in the morning, I like to get to the gym before I go to work. And the reason for that is because I sit all day. And if I sit all day, I get really bad migraine headaches if I'm not active. So I go to the gym for about an hour every day after I eat breakfast. And then I try to get here a couple minutes early and I try to make sure that all my drawings are in order. Answer, you know, voicemails, emails, things like that. Make sure everything is tidy before customers get here. And then I do my tattoos and I hang out with my clients. I do consultations. So I talk to people about, you know, what tattoos they want to get. And then at the end of my day, when I'm done doing my tattoos, I go home. Usually there's, I either have to make dinner or my husband has made dinner. And then I sit on the couch and I watch TV and I draw all my appointments for the next day. Sometimes I start a couple weeks in advance. Like sometimes I'll sit on the couch and start drawing for next week's drawings just so I can be ahead of my work. In your experience, who gets tattooed the most, women
10: or men? Oh.
9: (laughs) I think both, actually. I don't think one does more than the other. I think it's pretty equal, actually. How you handle difficult clients? You just be nice to them. I kind of think being in a tattoo shop can be really intimidating for some people and not all tattoo artists can be really nice but it's only because being a tattooer is really stressful so when you have a stressful job sometimes you're not super accommodating to people but um you just try to be empathetic and and try to figure out like like all right why is this person being so difficult today are they nervous um, and if they just want their tattoo a certain way, you just you just give them their tattoo the way they want it, you know.
10: Mm-hmm.
9: You just try to accommodate people as best as you can, because at the end of the day, it's not my tattoo; it's your tattoo, mm-hmm. and you are the one that has to live with it. So, mm-hmm. most of the time, people really aren't asking for much, and if you give them what they want, they they stop becoming difficult.
10: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. What was your first tattoo of, uh, like? Uh, I mean the first tattoo that you gave to, to your first customer. Oh my gosh. What what was like? I mean I imagine how how I mean can you tell us how how was it? Were you nervous? I mean did you poke? well?
9: I mean what well. <laughs> the first tattoo I ever did was on an ex-boyfriend and he had actually gotten me into tattooing. okay and uh i knew our relationship was over at that point because we were on the rocks when i gave him the tattoo so i kind of didn't really care i was like oh this is perfect because i know i'm not gonna have to look at this every day and he also like kind of deserves a bad tattoo so um you know it it was kind of the perfect opportunity to do my first tattoo i did it came out right or wrong? Oh, it came out horrible. Oh, <laughs> but it's okay because it was my first. It was horrible. <laughs> it bled so much. The whole thing <laughs> fell out later. It was just one giant scab. It was terrible. <laughs> but he deserved it. It's fine. He knows it too. If he heard this, he wouldn't. He would laugh. <laughs>
10: What would you say is the most rewarding aspect of being a tattoo artist for you specifically?
9: I honestly think it is the people that I get to meet. I meet a lot of really cool people um, and I get to kind of give them something and I never sit here and stay silent the whole time. Like every person that gets tattooed I learn something about them and I just think that's really cool. I think that's really kind of broadened my worldview, and I think it's just been good for me as a person. So that's my favorite thing about tattooing is is the humanity in it.
10: Some sort of therapy, I see. I mean, many tattoos have history, story, or I mean, something in it, and and they have a little bit of you in their body because yeah, you you are the artist.
9: Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's. That's pretty
10: accurate. And what would you tell a person that will be in that position that Crystal was, that parents did not see the value of that dream of being a tattoo artist? What would you tell a person that maybe is struggling to be a massage therapist? You know, one of those careers that not yeah. everybody views as, oh, that's the best that you can do. Instead, go to college? What would you tell that person?
9: Well, I did go to college. But when I was done doing all the things that my parents wanted me to do, at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? I'm an adult, and my career path is my responsibility, not my parents' responsibility. I just had this conversation with someone the other day about going out and doing their own thing with, with hair. And I think you have to follow your gut. And I think if you are... If you keep yourself accountable for your own progress and your own success then then you're going to do just fine. But at the end of the day your parents don't pay your bills. So you got to do what you you can do to pay your bills. And you have to like what you do because you have to do it every day. Exactly. And
10: would you say this feels like work or is this your passion?
9: I would definitely say there are days where it feels like work. I mean, work is work. I <laughs> I think there's value in hard work. I would say I enjoy working, so there there's that. There's the trade-off. You you can like what you do and it can still be work, but I'm I am proud of the work that I do. And if anybody would like to have a tattoo, where can I find you? I am at Sansu Tattoo at Exit Eleven in Round Lake, New York.
10: And do you have um, social media that people I do. can find yeah. you? Yep,
9: we are on Instagram at Sans Souci Tattoo, or you can find my personal page at K Ingram Tattoo. We also have a Facebook and a website, and it's tattoo.com. Why the name Sans Souci? So, mm-hmm. that's a good question. Sans Souci means without cares in French. Okay. Um, and so, I wanted the name of the shop to be something that was historical, and the Sans Souci Hotel and Resort was on Front Street in Boston Spa. And so I wanted it to be something that, you know, had a local connection to the area. But also, it, I kind of felt like Sans Souci was a nod to kind of the carefree attitudes that have defined tattooing throughout history. You know, the freak shows and the side shows and biker culture and all of those things that... You know that are anti-society so I kind of felt like it was a cute way of of making a reference to all those things good call
10: definitely. yeah anything... you like it <laughs> I love it is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners
9: if you are considering getting a tattoo you should definitely get one because they're fun thank you crystal for speaking with us today thanks Eileen and for
0: more information, you can go to sansuchi or find sansuchi tattoo on Facebook.
1: Sam Paris, arts, uh, an arts administrator for the for Salon Seance, is in conversation with Hussan Mohawk magazine's Andrea Cunliffe about the group's upcoming performance, The End of Time. Sam gives us his perspective on the uniqueness of Salon Seance and how this fits into the future of classical music and beyond.
0: The Friends of Chamber Music, Troy, is presenting on November 19th, the concert at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, an incredible ensemble called Ceylon Seance, a quartet for the end of time by Oliver Massian, composer. The administrator advisor for Ceylon Cyan's joining us, Sam Paris, to talk about what he does. Hi, Sam.
11: Hi, Andrea, pleasure to meet you.
0: I'm interested in you. What do you do exactly, Sam?
11: Yeah, it's a bit of an ambiguous role. So I focus on long-term strategy with Mari. Mari and I together envision the business end of salon seance, as well as how that interacts with the artistic end. So for example, currently we're in the process of website rebrand just went through a few weeks ago. That process, the vision statements of the organization, the budgeting of the organization, contracts, all of the logistics, also choosing the direction artistically in the future. I am less involved day to day with the artistic matters. However, I do help advise in that
0: capacity. Well, And it's such a valuable part, a producing part.
11: That is exactly.
0: This music is phenomenal, which we will talk about. But are you a musician as well?
11: I went to Simon's Rock in Great Barrington. I studied music there, uh, specifically music history. The composer I did my final thesis on was Messiaen, so I'm quite knowledgeable about him specifically this. That said, from there, I knew that I wanted to work with musicians, uh, so I went into arts management, managing artists as an agent, And then over time transitioned to being more of an arts administrator helping curate programs for different organizations i was at the aspen music festival as the associate artistic administrator there and i'm currently with the boston symphony but for me the path of something like salon seance has been my passion project behind in the wings and it's one of my favorite activities to be a part of because it's so artistically engaging on multiple fronts it brings these aspects of music history. It tries to answer larger question, Quartet for the End of Time, which is so much about hope in dark time and how we can transcend one of the most meaningful projects that i work on. And so my path has always been trying to figure out how to communicate When you're a musician, you always have these ideas in your head of how amazing a particular work is and being able to bring that to the public in a way that everybody can understand in a transparent way and feel the power of these works and answer these larger questions that these works pose can be a difficult thing to figure out a way to present. And I think Salon Seance is a beautiful answer to that. How do we address these larger questions and use music as the medium and use these performances as the medium in order to channel that?
0: And the larger question of this is uh, the end of time. How this particular piece of music would be applicable to the society we live in now and and what's happening in the world today?
11: Absolutely. I, I will say that I think thematically uh, it is not, directly about the end of time but instead what happens at the end of time and how do we push forward it's more about the to me the the hope of pushing through the end of time when time ends uh, there's this very terrifying image in uh, walter benjamin's i don't know if you're familiar with his writings he's a jewish philosopher and There is a text that he had about the philosophy of the end of time in which an angel is flying backwards through time and all of the rubble of time is kicking up, it's based off of a Paul Clay painting. That image to me is very dark. But I think what Messiaen's work is about is instead of something like that, instead of COVID, instead of being frozen in time, how do we move past that? Here is someone who is in a prison camp and was looking for hope and found something to cling onto. And so to answer your question, I think it's addressing this fundamental question now of how do we move through and how do we use hope and how do we rise above instead of necessarily about that end of time itself?
0: So the music interprets that in the way it's, it's presented, the way it's made, the way it's, it's created, That that's what the purpose of, of this piece is. Well, I think it's like a series, isn't it? A series of it's
11: pieces? A, it's, a, it's a series of tableaus. Each movement is a different tableau, and it directly corresponds to the final book in the Bible because Messiaen was deeply religious. And so to him, when you hear the final movement, which is just for violin and piano, it's the violin rising into this beautiful, transcending moment out of the depths, and so the entire work is structured around pushing you towards that. And through end of time, yes, and through all of these very dark representations, but ultimately it ends with this singing moment.
0: It's really moving, but not depressing it.
11: I think it does to some extent the end of time and then moves past that into the final movement. That's just my own interpretation, though.
0: It's going to be interesting to find all these external influences besides my experiencing it personally. The fact that you helped develop this or you were part of the evolution of this piece with the salon Séance, a séance.
11: It's a form of ritual. To me... The idea of a seance is a very specific ritual searching for answers to questions. When you think of what a seance comprises of, that is exactly what you are moving towards. And so uh, salon seance is another way of doing that.
0: When you go to a concert, you feel like you're part of a community. But this seems to branch into something even more tangible, more tactile. from what I understand. Can you clarify any of that for me?
11: Absolutely. Uh, why don't I, I? We we like for audience members to not necessarily know about the production they're walking into, um, because it enhances the experience we found. So I'll talk about a past production instead. Every iteration that we do, we do very differently, which is part of the purpose, because we're answering different questions depending on who the composer is and we're trying out different styles. So with Benjamin Britten, for example, uh, who you may or may not know, he, he had this very tumultuous relationship, friendship with the poet W.E. Auden, and so the Britten set featured works that were contemporaneous with their friendship and also with World War II, it was about Written's personal war with Auden. And so we incorporated some theatrical elements through spoken word and set some texts to some of his works while not creating a song, creating a story with some of his music. Now, that again, for each set, we do something very, very different. So, what you will see for Messiaen is not that we try to treat each work and each world and each question in its own way to engage the audience in an extra musical way and instead engage in a ritual. So we're, we're trying to create something that's not music specifically, even though it's based in music, but instead about a question and about how do we move through the world. So the Nessian program will focus on that, transcending and hopefulness.
0: That's wonderful. Is, is there something I haven't asked you that you think is important for us to know?
11: I would just think the important thing with a project like Salon Seance, and there are other projects out there with a similar vein, uh, but nothing quite like Salon Seance. By a similar vein, I mean in different mediums that aren't music related. That said, what we find is we connect with people who are, instead of thinking about music who are instead of thinking about particular art forms, we connect best with people who are thinking about larger questions in life and who are intellectually curious. And so it's been really exciting to see so many young audience members attending Salon Seance in particular and seeing engagement in a very different way because this engages a different part of your brain. It's uh, something more fundamental.
0: Will you be with us? Will you be there? Are you? Yes. Fantastic. I so look forward to the 19th. Thanks, Sam. You've been lovely to talk to. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This has been Andrea Cunla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with Sam Paris, Administrative Advisor for Salon Seance. The end of time is happening at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York on the 19th of November. Find out more information and get ticket registration on our website. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe.
1: And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is Kaylin McPherson. We thank all of our volunteers who who made today's episode possible. Headlines from...
0: Mark Dunley.
1: Headlines from Mark Dunley, Moses Nagel, Eileen Javier, and your co hosts, yours truly, Jacob Boston, and the wonderful, one and only, <laughs> Andrea <laughs> Cunliffe.
0: And this, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monetary donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to thank, we want to thank you and we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mediasanctuary or send us an email, hmm.org mediasanctuary.org. Tune in every weekdays from 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate your listening. Until next time!